0: Hi, this is Ben Lola. back to the Bible Canada. On the second last program of our current series, The King Goes Public, Dr. Newfeld will walk us through what Jesus said and did during the period of his growing popularity in the region of Galilee. Join me in the Word as we explore the message of the King in Matthew chapter four, verses 23 to 25.
1: Today, we're going to trace Jesus' rise to popularity. And in that, we're going to ask and try to answer the question of Christian popularity. Should we be encouraged when the Christian faith becomes popular or not? Or does it even matter? Should we be happy with big churches or should we criticize them? I hear a wide variety of answers to that question. I say this because some people seem to delight in the idea of a small faith, believing that small must mean faithful and large must mean compromised. I hope we finally get to the place where the size of a church is no indicator for us as to whether it's faithful or not. But should we seek to grow the Christian movement? I remember while I was pastoring, an influential man in the church demanded of me, when will it ever be enough, John, he said. Why do you always look to become bigger? And I said, it will be enough when every soul in greater Vancouver has heard. Until then, it will never be enough. And here's an additional question. If a large number of people are listening to the faith or even crowding churches, but have not yet responded in repentance and faith, is the fact that the crowd who hears is large, is that good, bad, or indifferent? I've heard people speaking of large crowds as chaff. It doesn't matter if they stay or go. Now, we've been looking at Matthew 3 and 4, and we've entitled this series, The King Goes Public, and we have been noticing all the preparation that led to the King of Kings stepping onto a stage that would eventually become the largest stage in the earth. I say that because more people are aware of Jesus and listen to Jesus than any other person in history. And in the days to come, when Christ returns, every knee will bow to Him. That is a stage that the Father was preparing for His own beloved Son. And we've noticed that Matthew records some details of the birth of Jesus, then skips over 30 or so years that Jesus lived in anonymity in Nazareth, and then even, to the most part, passes over the first year of Jesus' three-year ministry. And so we can see that he leads his readers directly to the second year of Christ's public ministry, the year of popularity. So let's read our text, Matthew 4:23 to25. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now, in a sense, what Matthew does here is present a kind of summary of the entire year of Christ's popularity. After that, he will fill in the details. But now we notice that as the king goes public, he sets a furious pace of activity that leads to an ever-increasing fame. The crowds are growing exponentially. First, we notice that Matthew is presenting Jesus as an itinerant or a traveling preacher. He's constantly on the move, going through Galilee. If you don't know where Galilee is, let me explain. You can divide Israel into two regions, the north and the south. The south is called Judea, which includes the city of Jerusalem. It's drier, has deserts, and is more heavily populated. And the north is called Galilee. It's green, it has agriculture, but it also has the Sea of Galilee with its fishing industry there. Now, when Matthew says in verse 23 that Jesus went throughout all Galilee, we need to get a sense of the area. In the time of Jesus, Galilee was about 120 kilometers long and about 65 kilometers wide. It had 204 cities and villages. The Jewish historian Josephus said that it had a population of 3 million, but almost everyone believes that Josephus was prone to exaggeration. So just for argument's sake, let's assume that it had 10% of what Josephus said. Then it had in the neighborhood of 300,000 people. Now, that would be an educated guess, but it is a larger group than we normally assume. Given the population density of the world at that time, it was a significant population. Now, I want you to imagine that population size in 204 villages. I'm assuming that it would have taken some time to visit all of them. I'm trying to get us a picture of Christ's activities. He would have walked from town to town and spent some time ministering in many of them. Because Capernaum was his home base, I'm assuming that he would have returned there often. I want us to see the sheer physical energy required for his ministry. He's not just falling into popularity. He is working for it. Clearly, he wants to spread his ministry through the entire region. The next thing I notice about Matthew's description of the ministry of Jesus is that Matthew tells us that he is teaching in the synagogues. So let's get a picture of that. Synagogues were highly significant to Jewish life. Although the temple in Jerusalem was the centerpiece of the Jewish faith, the local synagogues gave shape and character to the Jewish faith. The temple was the place of sacrifice. It had an altar, a holy place, and a holy of holies. It was the place of pilgrimage, and it was the place of national celebrations for the Jewish holy feasts, including things like Passover and the Day of Atonement. The temple was the symbol of their faith. But unlike the temple, the synagogues were local. They had no place for sacrifice. There was no altar there, no holy of holies. Instead, for all intents and purposes, each synagogue had but one room, and it would be a main meeting room for public worship. This would include the reading of the Torah, instruction from the Torah, as well as prayer. So synagogues were a place of teaching. They were also a place throughout the week where you would send your children to be educated. You remember Luke's description of Jesus entering into the synagogue in Nazareth. Luke says, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. So you can imagine Jesus on his itinerant ministry on every single Sabbath, no matter where he was, you would find him worshiping in a local synagogue. Now, of course, because his fame was growing, he would have been invited to speak. So let's go back to Luke's description of Jesus when in the synagogue in Nazareth. On that occasion, a copy of the scroll of Isaiah is given to him, and he stood up to read it, and he gave an explanation of the meaning of it. That was the custom, read Scripture, explain Scripture, pray. Now, each local synagogue was governed by elders. The elders also had a chief officer or a ruler of the synagogue. He supervised the service. The synagogue elders and rulers had such power, they were not only able to exercise discipline, but they did it on two levels. First, the most extreme, they they could throw you out of the synagogue. In that case, you were excommunicated from the faith of Israel, or they could choose a lesser punishment. They would have people scourged or whipped. (laughs) Nice. I can imagine a pre-service announcement. After church today, we invite you to stay behind as we will be whipping Harry, Margaret, and Dave to help them to be more respectful. And by the way, coffee and donuts will be served. Interesting church service, wouldn't you say? But on the serious side, this is why people feared the elders. These men had power and knew how to use it. So getting back to the synagogue at Nazareth, you'll remember that at that synagogue at that time, the synagogue was so enraged by what Jesus said that day, they drove him out of town and were about to throw him off a cliff. You assume that the synagogue ruler had no small part to play in that. Jesus was popular, but he was enraging the elders of Israel. And so the synagogue ministry of Jesus was filled with controversy because Jesus went to them on the Sabbaths and because his healing ministry followed him everywhere he went and because members of the synagogue would come to him after a service to be healed, a whole set of Sabbath controversies normally surrounded each synagogue visit. The secondary of Jesus' ministry mentioned by Matthew is that he is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom everywhere he's going. Now, of course, he did that in the synagogues, but Matthew mentions he was teaching in the synagogues, and now he mentions he's proclaiming. You get a sense of a much larger ministry. In essence, what Matthew is now describing is an open-air meeting which attracted huge crowds on non-Sabbath days that would never have fit in a synagogue. So in Matthew 5-7, to we have one sampling of such a sermon as Matthew tells us. When he's done, the crowds were astonished. They had never heard anyone preach like that before, for he taught them as one who had authority. And so picture Jesus, the itinerant traveling preacher, going to town, to villages with a powerful message unlike anything anyone has ever heard, and it's convicting. And he's calling people to abandon every earthly comfort and radically come and follow him. So Matthew has mentioned three areas of Jesus' ministry. He's a traveling preacher. He sets off firestorms in local synagogues, and he preaches in the open air, drawing thousands of people from the region. And then Matthew mentions one more feature that must have really brought the crowds to him. Jesus was healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Luke even adds that the crowd sought to touch him for power was coming out from him. And that said, Jesus' popularity skyrocketing. When we come back, we're going to discuss just what the healing ministry of Jesus actually meant and why the crowds
0: couldn't get enough of it. In this introduction, we get a vivid picture of the facets of Jesus' ministry as he tirelessly traveled, proclaimed the gospel, and healed the crowds who continued to pursue him. I think in a sense, this gives us a picture of what doing ministry is all about. It's hard work, sacrificial, and we can often arouse controversy and opposition. But like Jesus, we need to be clearly focused as we further our mission for the kingdom of God. After the break, Dr. Neufeld will continue unpacking an element of Jesus' ministry that drew so many people to him, his supernatural ability to heal.
1: So I want to say God has a special purpose for Back to the Bible. And Back to the Bible has a specific place in God's program.
0: Back to the Bible Canada is celebrating its 60th anniversary in 2018. 60 years of faithful Bible teaching. 60 years maintaining its commitment to teach the Bible with accuracy and integrity. We want to thank so many who have made this ministry possible. Today there are still those supporting the daily Bible teaching program who began listening in the 50s and since then generation after generation have been impacted by this critical mission. So if Back to the Bible Canada is or continues to be an important part of your spiritual walk with Jesus, consider sustaining this ministry with your prayers and financial gifts. Celebrate all that God has done and what He continues to do through the teaching of His Word. So call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: Unlike many of the rabbis of His day, Jesus was not afraid of the crowds, nor was He disparaging of the crowds. Even though He knew the crowds were fickle, He saw the crowds through the eyes of concern. In Matthew 9, 36, we read, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. It's for this reason that Christians should seek to draw as many people as we can to hear the message of the gospel. We should be concerned that everyone hears out of compassion. But we notice Jesus went about healing every disease. In a world ravaged by sin, Jesus was announcing that he was the great king. His kingdom would destroy not only Satan, wickedness, and sin, it would also destroy the effects of sin. Announcing his kingdom is also announcing the end of the old age of sin, death, and suffering. But Jesus is also doing miracles not only to prove that the kingdom has come. He's doing them because of his compassion for the sufferings of the people. Matthew mentions four categories of healing. He mentions first those afflicted with various diseases. And of course, this in itself drew many people to hear him. I think of blind Bartimaeus. I think of the woman with an issue of blood. I think of the 10 lepers of which only one came back to give thanks. I think of the paralyzed man lowered through the roof. I think of the man with a withered hand. The raising of Jairus' daughter. I even think about the unworthy man who was healed by the pool of Bethesda. The examples go on and on. Everyone who heard of Jesus who had a disease or had a loved one with a disease made their way to where he was. Some had no idea of the message, but But when they came, he would have compassion on them. The second category of miracles mentioned by Matthew deals with those possessed by demons, and here the examples are many. And the third category of miracles mentioned by Matthew is the epileptics. In those days, epilepsy was not a narrowly defined term the way we use it today. Back then, the word was a broad category for anyone who had a disease of the mind or what we would call today a mental illness. And as an aside, I find it interesting that Matthew makes a distinction between mental illness and demon possession. I mean, perhaps one day in a radio broadcast, we're going to have an opportunity to discuss exactly that. At any rate, Dr. Craig Bloomberg, having studied this, comments that in the ancient world, there was indeed a distinction between these two things. Turns out, the ancient people were not so ignorant that they thought every mental illness was indeed having of a demon And we do well to note that there is a difference today as well. And then, of course, the fourth category, the last of the categories, Matthew mentions the paralytics, which was a wide term for anyone unable to walk. Now, given this activity, the crowds came, some were carried in some cases, they didn't even have enough food to get home. They were desperate just to be there. Matthew mentions that his fame spread throughout all Syria. Uh, We do know that at the time of Jesus, many Jews had settled in Syria, no doubt. They heard from relatives from Galilee. It was also clear that many Gentiles were coming from Syria to hear Jesus as well. We think of the Canaanite woman who lived in the region of Tyre and Sidon, who was wondering if there were any scraps left from Jesus' table that might fall for her as a Gentile dog. The point Matthew is making now becomes apparent. The great king was going public. For 30 years, Jesus had labored in obscurity, living in obedience to his parents. Then John the Baptist preached and prepared the way. Then Jesus went by himself to the wilderness where Satan attempted his undoing, but he emerged from that experience in the power of the Spirit. And then his ministry began the first year with some obscurity. He began to develop a group of disciples. He began to train them. But he was also performing some miracles, although not on the large scale that we're talking about here. And then at some time in his second year of ministry, he moved his ministry into high gear. He was going from one town to the next, and as he went, the crowds came from Syria, from all of Galilee, the Decapolis, which is on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, from Judea, and even from Jerusalem. John the Baptist's greatest crowds were tiny in comparison to this. This was a movement, a phenomenon. Jesus was becoming a household name, news about his next preaching assignment would be leaked out and people would travel days to get to the place he was rumored would appear. And that brings us back to what I hinted at in the beginning. Was this good? We know that in time to come when his enemies began to slander him and and trade rumors about him and soon stories meant to scandalize him were accepted as fact and believed. I mean, furthermore, great pressure was put on people to deny him, and eventually he would stand before a howling mob screaming at the top of their lungs. They wanted the Roman government to crucify him. The year of popularity would pass, and the year of controversy would begin. But even while he knew this was coming, Jesus never stopped having compassion on the crowds. He never stopped holding large meetings. He never stopped healing Out of a heart of compassion, he did this right into the night when he prayed at Gethsemane, in which he healed the ear of a man who had come to arrest him. See, what are we to make of all of this? Well, we are to understand that he had compassion. Now, this was not naivete or a desire to be popular, but compassion drove him to meet with the crowds. He saw their needs. He saw their sorrow. He saw how sin had crippled them, and he reached out. See, that's why Christians, in response, do the same thing. Christians not only preach the gospel, we continue to be agents of compassion. We build hospitals and schools and orphanages. We care about literacy and ending disease and bringing peace where there is strife and ministering to the poor and helping those in crisis. We are the people of compassion, and we learned that from Jesus. Secondly, we notice also that he always shared the gospel. See, I think it's wrong to only care about the physical needs of people and neglect the needs of their eternal souls. Jesus never acted like that. Along with healing, he taught the gospel. He called people to stop building their houses on the sand and to build them on the rock. He called people to repent, for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And when Christians only do works of compassion and neglect gospel proclamation, we stop behaving like our master. Jesus both ministered to the physical and the spiritual needs of people, but one more thing needs to be added. He was also calling for disciples. Remember John 2, 23 and 24? There it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He had an insight into the hearts of people. Jesus was never fooled by his growing popularity. He always knew the difference between someone who believed that he had the power to heal them and someone who had the desire to follow him. There was a huge difference. And so Jesus became popular, and the crowds just kept getting bigger. And at one time, when his disciples urged Jesus to send them all away, he refused and actually did a miracle so that they would stay. And that brings us back to the question, Should we be afraid of large crowds? No, I think we should welcome them because some among them will hear and some among them will build their house on a rock and abandon the house on the sand. Do you remember the man who asked me when it would ever be enough? Well, I'm gonna tell you about a dream I have. I dream of a day when it will be impossible to live in Canada without having to decide what to do with Jesus. I know it's possible to live and die in this country today and never have to deal with Jesus, but I dream that one day, the words and the works of Jesus will be so pervasively felt in this land that everyone will talk about them so that no one should step into eternity without having to answer the question of what they did about the message of Jesus. That's how big I want the crowds to become. And I hope that you do as well. And so would you stop for this moment and pray with me for our land, and ask the Lord that he might so increase the popularity of the message of Jesus that everyone would stop whatever they're doing in here. Heavenly Father, I plead with you for our land. I plead with you for the salvation of many in this land, but I plead for you also a day when the culture would be so transformed, so changed, so radically altered, O oh Lord God, that every single man and woman and boy and girl in this country would be confronted with the claims of Christ. O oh Lord, to this end, we dedicate
0: the land in which we live. In Jesus' strong name we pray, amen. John, I sensed you were stirred up a bit today, and good. Uh, We need to hear this because we live in a world right now where spirituality is very private, but that's not what Jesus is doing. He's very public, he's very personal.
1: I agree. We need to be public as well. We need to stop being intimidated, and I do think that we should in faith believe that God is going to change this land. Why not? It's God who does it, so let's pray deeply within our own hearts that that would happen. that's my prayer all the time. I would encourage the
0: listeners to make it theirs. As Christians, we, like Jesus, should desire that multitudes of people from every walk of life and situation come and hear the truth, whether in the context of church or through other means. And in a culture that is trying to silence the message as much as possible, this can be discouraging and it can hold us back. But Jesus never held people back from hearing his word, and neither should we. I hope you'll join us tomorrow as we finish the final program of this series with a message entitled, In Praise of the Great King, with Dr. John Neufeld. Laugh Again with Phil Calloway will be celebrating its fifth anniversary in 2019. One way we'll be celebrating is by inviting you to join us for the Laugh Again fifth anniversary Caribbean Cruise. From February 3rd to the 10th, we guarantee a week of laughter, fellowship, spiritual refreshment, music, and so much more upon one of Royal Caribbean's newest incredible ships, the Oasis of the Seas. Is it a time for a family vacation, a getaway with friends, or a time to simply kick back? Enjoy all the sights and sounds of the Caribbean and allow your heart and soul to be ministered to. Well, join Phil Calloway and friends this coming February 3rd to the 10th 2019 for a vacation of a lifetime. Laugh Again, truth bringing laughter to life. For more information, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or check out laughagain.ca.